Howdy and welcome to your dog's best life. This is Leanne. So I had a conversation the other day with a prospective student and when they were discussing some of the issues that they were having with their dog, one of the things that came up was that the dog had chewed up the upholstery in their vehicle. And obviously as human beings, we see that as a bad thing, right? I don't like my upholstery being eaten by my dogs. However, I explained to them, and I think this is really important to understand in dog training, so we're going to get into the nitty-gritty on this. This is a problem, obviously, of management, right? I mean, if you don't know dog, probably shouldn't leave it alone in your car. But it's also a problem of a failure on the dog's part to, to both generalize and to dial down. And we struggle with this a lot with dogs because we're used to the way we generalize and the way we dial down and dogs brains don't work the same when it comes to generalization as well as the ability to focus on a singular thing so because they're a different animal and when we look at dogs we have to respect the fact that they're coming at this we're teaching a different species it's hard enough teaching our own bloody species let alone teaching a species that, that thinks differently than we do so when we're discussing generalization, there's, there's two facets to it. The first is, of course, the idea that if I tell you that something is an animal, right, you're going to have, you're going to have certain ideas about what that is. It's not a table. It's not a TV set. Could be a dog. Could be an elephant. Could be a fish. Depending on our definition, it could be a grasshopper. So that's a generalization we're able to exclude certain things with the word animal, but we also are including a huge array of things that may be too big a broad a thing. Now, if I told you it's a bird, well, now you know. It's a, it's a feathered animal that probably flies, that you can define. It has a beak. It has, you know, little feet sticking out the bottom. It only has two feet. It has wings. Now you, you've narrowed it down even further. If I say it's a robin, then you can actually, if you have an understanding of what robins look like, and I, my understanding is there's two kinds, there's European and American robins, but they're very common in America, and I believe the European one is very common in, in Europe, is you know what that looks like. You can, in America, define this as a gray bird, a medium-sized small bird, gray body, orange underbelly, you know, they, they hop around on the ground, they eat worms. So now you've been able to dial it all the way down to Robin. That's, that's how generalization works. So, and that, and that's really important. We need that. We need that in life. We, we need that so that when we eat one, if I go to a strawberry plant and I pluck a strawberry and I eat it and I discover it tastes good, I need to be able to generalize that if I see that type of plant anywhere else, I can recognize it as a strawberry and know that the food is safe. I mean, it's important for your survival. And so anytime you think of something as being important for your survival, you have to assume that other animals have the capacity. I, I err on the side of if it makes sense to have the skill set, then we're going to err on the side of understand that our dogs bring that skill set to the table. Our dogs understand that our cat is safe. You shouldn't chase our cat. But maybe they don't generalize that to other people's cats, right? Or maybe they do. Every dog is a little different on that, but they do understand that. My, dog don't, my dogs don't need to understand that you herd one sheep and ignore the rest. They herd all of the sheep. And if one sheep leaves, they understand that they need to put that sheep back with a group of sheep. 
And they can actually discover that there are certain sheep who whose behavior they don't like, and they'll single that sheep out for special attention, usually negative. So when we discuss generalization, there's a lot going on. So I just read an interesting paper that kind of discusses this because I thought I should probably uh, check my sources before I got into this. And they were talking about it in the, in the realm of scent work. And of course, scent work is incredibly important for a lot for human safety in many cases. And dogs do a ton of work with their noses that we humans cannot do. And the example given was cocaine. So if I teach my dog what cocaine smells like, because I want to ensure that cocaine is not going through airports or through ports of call, or I, we have checkpoints here in Arizona for, for trafficking, uh, smuggling. And if I teach my dog, I'm going to probably use a sample. I mean, I don't think that the Border Patrol or anybody else has access to bags and bags of cocaine. I suspect they have very, very minute amounts that are very heavily controlled. And those minute amounts probably largely come from one or two selections. And But that dog needs to be able to generalize from that cocaine, that particular type of cocaine, because we don't know what dogs really smell, all the way out to cocaine that's cut with talcum powder, cocaine that's cut with fentanyl, cocaine that's cut with, I don't know, aspirin. I don't know what you cut cocaine with. But the dog has to understand that that signature anywhere is relevant. However, the example given was fascinating. Snapdragons, the little plants that live in your garden, also have the same chemical smell as cocaine. So what you don't want is you don't want your dog to generalize to the point where your dog is pulling over every truck that goes by that's for going to the nursery to deliver plants. They have to be able to narrow it down. So we, we need this skill set in our dogs, which brings us back to the first part of the story, which was the dog eating the upholstery. Uh, we see this much more often in dogs eating children's toys. Uh, and, and the argument that I can honestly say, which makes sense to me, is if you go to a pet store and you pick up a fluffy, squeaky toy and you put it next to a child's fuzzy, squeaky toy, I know kids probably don't have squeakers in them, but let's just take the squeaker out, you couldn't tell the difference, right? A toy is a toy, especially the fuzzy kind. We in our brains understand, well, this is for a dog and this is for a human only because of probably where we bought it and... Again, maybe it has a squeaker, maybe it doesn't. We can, we can put those in two categories. And so can dogs, but they have to be told. And what we fail to do often is explain to the dog, this toy that smells like you, smells like the dog food that comes, smells like the pet store it came from, um, doesn't smell like child, <laughs> this belongs to you the Barbie or the little stuffed animal over here that smells like the child and doesn't smell like a pet store and doesn't smell like you, that doesn't belong to you. And we have to train that and we have to train it over and over and over again because when you buy a new one, it's going to have probably a very neutral smell. So you have to show the dog each and every time until the dog can generalize, oh, these are my things and those are your things. The same thing happens with upholstery in a vehicle. Let's say that this dog wasn't chewing on the upholstery because of stress or it doesn't like cars or it was bored to tears and had nothing to chew on. Let's assume that it just thought it was a plaything 
right? There's no reason for a dog to naturally assume that somehow upholstery is some special set aside that you're not allowed to chew unless you've explained to them that upholstery is, in a, set, is a set aside that you're not allowed to chew. And, and the way you do that is by watching a puppy. So a perfect example is I have, I have Briscoe, my little, my little guy. He's 15, 16 months old right now. And he has just been allowed recently to be loose in my car as opposed to being crated in my car. He doesn't like, it's hot in my car and I have one of those canvas crates and I, the air conditioning is aimed at it, but I still think it, he struggles with that. And he's very sensitive to, to heat. He's not living in the right state, poor guy. So anyway, he's not a real big fan of the canvas crate and he's, he's 16 months old. So I thought, well, let's allow him to make choices in the vehicle and let's, and let's entrust him to this. So, you know, one day I, I come out, I, I look, I hear chewing. Anytime you hear chewing, you're like, mm, what is being chewed in my back? my back seat of my truck because I don't have anything that the dogs are allowed to chew in the back truck. And I look over and he's he's got the corner of the kind of hammock that the dogs have in the back seat of the truck. He's just chewing on it, right? Because it, it he's bored, he's a dog, and he's like, well, this is a nice texture to play with and chew on, so I'm going to chew on it. And so in that moment, I have to say, uh-uh, you're not allowed to chew on that. And I don't make a big deal about it, but I just say, hey, no, no, you're not allowed to chew on that. And I just kind of, kind of, you know, hey, just get his attention, tell me he's a good boy when he moves away. And generally, that's all it takes. And it, it's probably very similar to little kids with, they struggle with generalizing putting things in their mouths, right? Everything is food until proven otherwise. So they're sticking anything in their mouths. And you have to kind of follow them around as a parent saying, oh, no, that's not food. That's not food. This is food. That's not food. The rock's probably not something you should be chewing. It probably shouldn't be chewing on, on that stick either. But we're not punishing them. We're not assuming that they're stupid for, for putting the, that's a That's a normal developmental stage. And we should recognize in dogs that putting every single thing in their mouth is a normal developmental stage. It just lasts longer. And that some dogs are just naturally going to chew on things. That, that's, they get a lot out of it, dogs do. And probably humans, there's a reason we probably chew gum. We have to take the onus of bad dog out of the picture and just say to ourselves, have we spent the time to generalize this, to explain it to our dog? And sometimes it's, it's one of those things that you will find that you're generalizing for a long time, depending on the dog. And you'll still see things where like, what? how did you choose to chew on that? Uh, years into owning your dog, perhaps. And you just, it, it's kind of weird. I mean, I remember one time I, I had a, a six-year-old German Shepherd. He was a, a former prison dog, super nice dog, and well-trained. Obviously, this is a very well-behaved dog, and he has Kong toys, and he liked firewood. He'd carry firewood all over the backyard, and liked his little two-by-fours. He was a big wood dog. And, you know, wood is a very general thing. And so I'd already told him not to eat the rose bush because that, that is wood. And thankfully, a rose bush also had a hand in saying that because it's a rose bush and it has some stickers on it. But one morning, I, I, I woke up or I came downstairs and I hear this grinding. And I was like, what is that grinding noise? And it sounded like something was grinding up against the house. And I don't, I live in the desert. We don't have trees run up against our house. So it's just, it was a bizarre sound. So I go out the front door and I see my German Shepherd laying on the sidewalk right below my, my deck, chewing on the deck step. It was a piece of wood, right? It was a two by, I don't know, two by six, two by eight. It fell to hand. He was laying on the patio, which is nice and cool. 
and his head was probably on the step or near the step and when he woke up there's this piece of wood conveniently located right at head level and so he starts chewing on it and I said Dax you're not allowed to chew on that uh uh don't do that and he's like okay you know, and I gave him a piece of firewood and he went off with a piece of firewood, never did it again. But it was a, it was a failure of generalization or specific, specificity, good job, specificity, yes, specificity, yes. It was a failure of that for me to have explained to him. But how would I explain to him, okay, don't eat the porch, unless he offers to eat the porch. That's the problem with dogs is... With kids, you can simply say, stop eating rocks, and that defines all rocks. Or stop picking things up and shoving them in your mouth. If it's on the ground, just don't. Dogs, it's harder. And especially if you do allow them to pick things off the ground. So obviously, I'm allowing my dogs to pick things off the ground. Otherwise, he wouldn't be getting firewood in two-by-fours. So I, I, have, I allow my dogs quite a bit of freedom. And sometimes that comes back and bites me in the stairs. So that's... That's where a lot of people really struggle is with not understanding that we need to help our dogs understand that toys are cool, socks are not. Um, the the licky mat is wonderful, but you're not allowed to chew the rugs. And, and we have to be on our toes and expect that we have to explain this to our dogs kind of all the time until they totally have generalized until they've you know sampled everything in the yard. And you're like, okay, that's the things. The other half of this picture is the generalization that occurs in training and this is where our dogs struggle to generalize as well as our failure to understand inputs into our dog into our training really comes and becomes a problem for us so let me explain when you learned to do say your abcs as a little kid right? Maybe you learned it as a song with a parent, right? The little ABC song. And then you learned it as, as letters. You know, you saw letters on a piece of paper, what have you. There was all sorts of other things going on at that time. The, there was a time of day. There was the person who was talking to you. There was where you were in the room. There was the temperature wherever you were. There was the weather outside, if it was relevant, if you could see out the windows. If it was a classroom setting, it was you were sitting next to Johnny and Susie was to your left and the little kid behind you had just farted and it smelled like chalkboards because yes, that I'm, not, I'm that old, that it smells like chalkboards and that uh, mimeograph, that purple mimeograph paper and our, our ink, all of those are inputs and they're all a part of the learning process, right? We know this to some extent in that memory we know is triggered by scent in humans right? You, a scent will bring you back. I have only visited my grandparents' home back in Chicago. I'd only visited them maybe two or three times, maybe in my whole life. We are not a super close family on that side. And they had a basement. And I live in Arizona. We don't really have a lot of basements in Arizona. And when I walked down into the basement, it was a cool room for a little kid, super steep stairs, and it wasn't, I guess, not a finished basement, and concrete floors, and I remember there was something down there we'd liked, I think maybe a pool table or something like that, and that seems awfully cool for my grandparents, whatever, um, and we'd go down there, and that smell, that basement smell, has stuck with me my whole life, 
and there's an antique shop in Bisbee, Arizona that has a basement. And when you go into that basement, I'm brought back every single time to the smell of my grandparents' house in Chicago from, you know, a really long, I'm not going to give away my age, a really long time ago that I've only been in once or twice. Now, maybe if you lived someplace like Chicago and you went into multiple, multiple basements, you'd recognize the smell of basements, but it wouldn't really have a, maybe a, a strong memory for you. But for me, because I don't live in a place with basements and I only knew somebody, one person with an unfinished basement when I was a kid, that was very, that was their house. Same thing, my grandfather also smoked a, a pipe. And not only do I like the smell of a, a, a pipe tobacco, but it does bring me back to that smell in that little house. So we are very much linked to memory and scent. And of course, dogs are much more a, a scent-driven animal than we are. So going back to the classroom setting where you were learning your ABCs, we humans, we have a much better developed neocortex. That's the part of the brain that helps generalize. And that's the part of the brain in the human that is much bigger, much larger, much more robust than it is in the dogs. And we are better at generalizing than dogs are. So when you were learning the ABCs, there were all these specific pieces behind in, in that context. Like I said, there was the kids and the smells and the, and the visuals and the, the maybe the, if you were in a classroom, maybe the, that horrible lighting that they have. Uh, fluorescent lighting and and all of that but you were able to take the abcs and generalize it to anywhere right you could you could say them anywhere and if somebody said to you at your grandma's house hey i just heard you learned your abcs can you tell them to me you can tell them to her you her in your kitchen in her kitchen even though the smells are different, the views are different, the person next to you are different, everything's different, you can still do that. Dogs struggle with that. All the inputs, as far as we can tell, all the inputs that were happening in the moment that you taught your dog sit became relevant to the dog's understanding of the word sit. So if you were leaning over the dog, if you reached into your treat bag first and grabbed a treat first, if you used a hand signal, because you probably did, you were luring the dog. Then you said the word sit, but it was in the training location and there were five other puppies around you and they were facing east and all of these inputs matter to the dog. And sit doesn't stand alone in those inputs. And so what happens is when you then take that same cued behavior that you think should be generalized, right? You should, I taught you sit. You should be able to understand sit everywhere. That's not how dogs perceive it. You have to then take it to the bathroom, to the kitchen, different locations, and you have to get rid of all the other fuzzy stuff that you were doing. You have to get rid of the leaning of the over. You have to get rid of the reaching for the treat bag. You have to get rid of the hand signal if you don't want to use that as well. And you have to clean up your technique. That's what we're always talking. If you listen to dog trainers, one of the biggest things after timing is having really clean mechanics. 
That's what we're talking about. We're talking about all the fuzzy background noise that goes into teaching a behavior that in many cases are necessary, right? If it's a little puppy, you had to lean over. You have to lure it so the hand has to be moving. You had to have a treat in your hand first so the puppy would follow the hand. You had to have all these antecedent pictures for the puppy to understand what you were asking. And you're going to repeat those pictures multiple times because if you just get rid of them right away, the dog's going to be like, I don't understand what the heck you want. But then you have to start fading those pictures if you want the dog to understand that sit always, wherever you are, under any circumstance, means sit. And, and let me talk to you a little bit about what we mean by generalization. And it depends on, again, what you're trying to achieve in your dog's life. If, if you teach sit and you think that you're going to use it five times in the dog's lifetime, it doesn't matter. If you teach sit and you want to compete, it matters a lot. So you need to be able to teach your dog to sit when you're sitting. When you're standing, when you're facing away from the dog, when the dog is across the room from you, when the dog is running after a rabbit, you have all of those are different contexts. All of those are different pictures. The word is the same. The behavior is the same. Nothing has changed, but the everything surrounding it has. And for the dog, everything surrounding it is so much more salient than it is to us. To us, that's background noise and immaterial. To a dog, all of that is part of the cue system that makes them understand. So a perfect example of this is Briscoe. Like I said, my puppy, we are, we're starting stock dog training with him. And I'm, because he's a big dog, he's a big Australian shepherd as opposed to my little bitty border collies. He is learning to sit as opposed to down as a stop. We'll eventually teach him stand, but right now it's a sit. So on stock, he has learned he can sit anywhere. He can sit anywhere around when I'm asking him. He's out away from me. I, I step into his eye. I say the word. I cue the word. He recognizes that picture, and he stops. That picture does not at all, unfortunately, go to teaching sit on a leash or next to me. So the other day, I was practicing healing with him. And all of a sudden, I don't know what changed. All of a sudden, sit was, he had never heard the word before in his life. He could not. We were healing along. I'd stop. And I'm wanting an auto sit. And I'm just getting staring. And so I give him the cue for sit. And I give him the hand signal for sit. And I'm helping him by taking a step back and helping him lean into a sit. And for whatever reason, he was really struggling with this. And if you didn't understand how generalization works in dogs, how the fact that I taught sit when sitting in front of him, right? I sat right directly in front of him, facing him, and taught sit that way. And then I taught sit as a front behavior where you come into me and you sit right in front of me. And that then I taught sit on stock away from me. But maybe I haven't spent enough time teaching sit next to me. We have taught sit next to me. He understands that. But in this case, there was all sorts of noise going on. There was all this ruckus going on in the building because we had people coming into the building to, to set up for a class. So there were people coming in. There were dogs barking. There was all the whole antecedent picture had changed. And he was able to do the heel, which gave me the idea that he was really able to handle all this chaos. But the sit disappeared and that tells me a couple things. I mean, that's the great thing about dog training. If you look at it always as a question, as opposed to defiance in the dog. 
So when I look at misbehavior, I'm putting that air quotes, or an oops, or a mistake, or whatever you want to call it, on my dog's part, when my dog doesn't do something I expect it to do, and that I think it has the tool set to do, instead of saying, my dog's defying me, my dog is ignoring me, my dog is all, if, if the word is starting with dog is probably wrong. Instead of starting there, if I say to myself, well, this tells me a couple things. This tells me that his heel work is actually stronger than his sit work, which is fascinating to me. But that's true because when I start thinking about it, we had really struggled with down for a little bit and we worked a lot on down. So we had strengthened the down, we had kind of neglected the sit and we did not spend a lot of time on sits in heel because I was really working on getting a heel first. And so all of this plays into it. On top of that, the noises might've been a little stressful. He's going through a little bit of a kind of fear period right now. He's a little bit sensitive right now. And so the noises might've been just enough to make him not 100% keen on what we were doing. And that bit of distraction was enough to knock him off the ability to sit in that circumstance. He could heal, but he couldn't sit. So I look at this not as my dog is bad, my dog is defiant, my dog is stupid, my dog, my dog, my dog. I look at it as my training has a hole in it. My communication has some problems. My, my problem is I need to better explain to my dog what I want and when I want it and how I want it. Better maybe help him with noise maybe help him with chaos, maybe work him more in those circumstances. He's not used to that picture. We don't often have people setting up classrooms in the middle of our, our training sessions in the building. Uh, it's, it happens once a week. So now I'm like, okay, I'll work him every time. I'll work him every time. I'm gonna work, I'm gonna drill the sit for a little bit because he's an Aussie and he can tolerate drilling and make it super fun for him, make it super salient for him, make the rewards more mobile, make them more exciting, throw the treats, make them real excited about it, make them more thoughtful about it, build that behavior up so that I have it. So it becomes mine. And look at it from the perspective of this is a generalization problem. He's not generalized the sit to this context. Noise and beside me and all of the thing, whatever it was. So that's, these are the two places where I feel that we humans really struggle with how the dog brain works. We expect too much ability to narrow down the world when it comes to things to chew on or things to dig in or, or pee on. And too, we expect too much and faster generalization than we get. And it frustrates us because we are a human being and we think like human beings and we don't understand sometimes why the dog is doing the things we do. And that again, and I, I know I keep going on about that, is why I feel it is absolutely so important whenever we run into a training issue to not start the sentence with my dog is, unless the answer is confused. That the way you start your sentence is, this didn't work because I need to work harder, need to work smarter, need to work cleaner, need to clean up my, my training, whatever it might be. This is, again, a place for video, another pair of eyes, all those things that all dog trainers are always recommending for everybody. Watch your training. Watch all the things that are going on. Proof your dog. Ask yourself, 
Could I ask my dog to jump on the couch and sit? Could I ask my dog, if I'm sitting on the floor, can my dog sit? If my dog is halfway across the room, can my dog sit? If my dog is playing with other dogs, can I ask my dog to sit? And all of those aren't failures on the dog part. It's failures in your training. And they're not even failures. They're just, it's information. I haven't trained this. Maybe you don't want to, right? Maybe it'll never come up. Maybe I've never asked myself, can my dog stop stop moving in a when they're playing with another dog? That's never come up to me. I've never asked my dogs to do that. So it will, it, I could trust it, but I don't give enough of a shit, honestly, to discover whether or not they do it because that never will come up. But for my dogs, they better know how to stop on sheep. And in the Border Collie's cases, a stop is either a sit or I mean a lie down or a stand. I don't give a shit, pick something, but you better stop. And I don't care where you are. I don't care if you're 400 yards away from me. If I say stop, you stop. That's important for my dogs. May not be important for your dogs. There may never be a reason for you to ask your dog to sit 400 yards, right? A lot of dogs, it's a good idea to teach an emergency sit or emergency down because the example I always use is if your dog chases a bunny across the road and doesn't get hit by car, but now you're calling your dog and you do see a car, you need to be able to stop your dog so he doesn't run in front of traffic. That's a, that's a good place for an automatic taut sit. A lot of people call it an emergency sit. I don't know why it's like all sits are emergencies. It, it, you don't give some behaviors an out. Oh, you can do this one sometimes and this one is always. No, they're always, always. So if I call my dog and then I need him to stop, I ask for a sit. There's probably That's probably the reason that they teach that or they want that in most advanced obedience classes or most of advanced obedience courses that you run, uh, whether it's AKC or shuts under any of those, usually they have some sort of stop on recall or some sort of stop on, on a send out. They want the dog to, to understand how to stop and that stop can be a sit or a down on a run. So that's just what I wanted to go over a little bit because I really think that piece gets missed a lot. And, and we can really do a lot of damage to our dogs if we, if we see these behaviors that are normal and, and part of the way the dog's brain work as, as defiance or a bad dog. Cody, when I got her, came from somebody who had a little kid. And as mentioned before, the reason she came to me is because she had bitten that little kid. And when I got Cody, she would not touch a toy, would not under any circumstances. A little year old border collie would not touch a toy. And the more I started thinking about it, the more I thought, you know, I bet she got in big trouble. And for her, big trouble is, you know, knock, you know, knock it off. She's a border collie. For touching the kids' toys. I bet she got busted for that and just said the risk of touching any small fuzzy thing was not worth it. And so it took me about six to eight months of really focused work to get her on a toy again. And even then she won't play tug with me unless it's on a flirt pole where there's a lot of distance between me and her and the pressure's completely off. So there are ramifications for making choices about how to train our dogs based on an errant belief on how their brains work. So while it may not seem important for pet dog training to understand the cognitive function of our dogs, it really is. It's so relevant to, to understanding and helping our dogs succeed, especially for competition dogs, is to help them understand that a sit means sit no matter where you are. 
down means down no matter where you are or what's going on. And that's time. That, that's time and that's proofing. And taking them out and practicing here and practicing there and practicing under these circumstances and practicing here and practicing when I don't have a treat pouch on and practicing when you don't have a leash on and practicing when you don't wear a collar at all and practicing all of those pictures so that you have it when you need it. So anyway, I just wanted to touch base on that. I thought it was kind of relevant and it, it's something that I, I work with a lot. And I think all dog trainers, we, we have the similar, uh, similar stories to this and so the best thing we can just say is is understand that your dogs look at life differently and help them to understand what you want in all the contexts that are relevant and important to you. Thank you. Have a fantastic day of training and uh, rate, review, follow, I don't know, subscribe, that's the word, and check us out on Facebook, Your Dog's Best Life on Facebook. Thank you. Bye.